Well, thank you very much, Madam Charge, dear Andreas Gestrich, for those very kind introductions. Um, German and European unification, said Helmut Kohl, are two sides of the same coin. If he said it once, he said it a thousand times. I must have heard him say it at least a hundred times. And the subject I want to discuss with you is the extent to which and the ways in which German and European unification are two sides of this coin, which is, of course, the euro. That is my focus. And in a sense, Andreas, this is to come back to the subject of the book I published a quarter century ago, to revisit in Europe's name the, the, one of the basic arguments of that book was that West Germany, the Federal Republic of Germany's quite exceptional commitment to European integration, and it was exceptional if not unique, was both idealistic and instrumental. West Germany was deeply committed to European unification because it wanted to be, particularly after the horrors of Nazism, but also because it needed to be, because only thus could it win the trust and support of its European and Western allies and partners for German unification. As Hans-Dietrich Genscher put it in a speech in early autumn 1989, the more European our policy is, the more national it is two sides of the same coin, and of course West Germany's commitment to European unification did massively prepare the ground for German unification. When, however, the moment came with the fall of the Berlin Wall, then some dissonance was certainly heard. And what I'm going to do in this lecture is three things. First of all, I'm going to look specifically at the historical connection between German unification and the key decisions towards European Economic and Monetary Union, EMU as it was then called. This will be on the basis of documents, memoirs, interviews. It will be the classic historian's history. Secondly, I'm going to look at the period since the arrival of the Euro and ask how the consequences have worked out in terms of harmony or dissonance between Europe and Germany. That will be, if you like, history of the present. Um, it will be unfinished history, but there's still a thing or two we can say. And then thirdly, a few reflections on the present and the future, about which, of course, we know least, uh, um, which doesn't stop people spending most of their time talking about it. Um, but nonetheless, I will be relatively brief. So first of all, the historian's history. It's important to say at the beginning that there is, of course, a prehistory of European Monetary Union as a project in its own right as part of European integration, the Werner Report of 1970. However, as Charles Grant points out in his book on Jacques Delors, this project had been largely, it was, it was very much in abeyance until in 1988, Jacques Delors, with Great Elan, revived the project, 
we had the creation of the Delors Committee, which Delors chaired, which sat between September 1988 and April 1989, and recommended a three-stage process towards monetary union, of which the first stage, and only the first stage, was agreed at the Madrid European Council in June 1989. The first stage of EMU, which was very harmless, it was ending exchange controls and the completion of the single market, not the decisive stages. At the same time, on the other side of the Iron Curtain, particularly in Hungary and Poland, political processes that I was following very closely were developing, which were going to grain speed and lead, of course, or at least contribute to the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Soviet Empire in Eastern Europe. At that stage, these two processes were running on completely different tracks, not even necessarily parallel tracks, quite separate tracks. Now, my first key argument is that it is essentially in the moment of the fall of the Berlin Wall, and particularly in the month thereafter, that these two tracks come together in an absolutely decisive way for the future of the European Union. And that actually the decisive period is between, it's just one month, between the 9th of November and the 9th of December 1989. Um, a word about the documents. German historians always have to say a word about the documents. Um, we have a fantastic set of documents for this period because everybody's so interested in German unification that you know, exceptionally fast, a lot of documents have been published, which incidentally cast a lot of life on, light on the history of monetary union. The only key collection we do not have is the presidential papers of François Mitterrand. We have all the Quai d'Orsay papers. Um, this is a very great pity, because if we had the presidential papers of François Mitterrand, we would see Mitterrand's diplomacy in all its magnificent foxiness and Machiavellianism. Um, if you have any connection to someone called Dominique Bettinotti, please use that connection to get her to open the papers. <laughs> she is his literary executor. She refused even the French official historians of the Quai d'Orsay to give access, actually, to publication of the Mitterrand papers. And so that's an important caveat, and we may have to wait for that. Nonetheless, we have a lot. So the position is that on the morning of the 9th of November, when of course nobody knew that the wall was going to come down, the German government still had a clear position, which was that European political union must take priority over monetary union, indeed political and economic union. It was the so-called coronation theory that the monetary union would be the crown at the end of the process. And it was, of course, absolutely spot on right in its basic analysis, um, as none other than Nicholas Caldor pointed out at the time of the Werner Report. Then the wall came down, and everything changes. On the 18th of November, at the Paris EC summit, according to Helmut Kohl's accounts, Mrs. Thatcher stamped her foot in fury at the notion that the EC might commit itself to supporting German unification. Um, and Kohl writes in his memoirs, I quote, Mitterrand schien ihre Haltung zu billigen. So Mitterrand seemed to support or at least accept her, uh, uh, her attitude. 
Then, ten days later, Helmut Kohl launched, as you will recall, his ten-point plan, the tenth point of which was an eventual confederation between the two German states. He did so without prior consultation with France or Britain. In the last minute, the United States was informed. All the sources agree that Mitterrand was absolutely furious. The best book on Mitterrand uh, and, and Germany by Ulrich Lappenkuper says that there was talk of trahison in, 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 in the Elysee. And uh, Jacques Attali, in his book Verbatim, um, a colorful account of, of his time with François Mitterrand as president, says uh, that Mitterrand says, said at that point, Mais il ne m'a rien dit, rien dit, je ne l'ouvrirai jamais. Il n'obtiendra rien de moi là-dessous avant que l'unité de l'Europe n'ait beaucoup progressé. So already, now, I have to say, Attali's account is anything but verbatim. It's one of the greatest misnomers in history. But nonetheless, I think it fairly captures the spirit in which Mitterrand responses. There's no doubt he was furious, and there was no doubt he was always already looking to make that linkage that Attali describes. Helmut Kohl then sends Genscher to Paris to receive the full fourth of Mitterrand's wrath. This is recorded in a German protocol. Again, we don't have the French record, which records, amongst other things, Mitterrand saying that we are in danger of going back to the Vorstellungswelt von 1930 the imaginative world of 1913, that there is a danger of a triple alliance of France, Britain, and Russia again forming against Germany, and that, that Germany, which had been a motor of European unification, now you're a break. This was a real roasting from Mitterrand to Genscher, again with the clear message, which is picked up by Joachim Bitterlich, very acute advisor to Helmut Kohl in a memo at the beginning of December, which says, Chancellor Kohl, Mitterrand doesn't believe you. He just doesn't buy your commitment. What he wants is a firm commitment to an intergovernmental conference on European monetary union soon, leading to a timetable for monetary union and European pol political union, a parliament, all of that, that can come later. On the 5th of December already, Helmut Kohl makes a key concession, already, although still saying it'd be a great idea to have a European political union, but um, nonetheless saying in a letter to Mitterrand, um, yes, we will set the terms for an intergovernmental conference um, under the Italian presidency, um, by the end of 1990, and we will move into an intergovernmental conference on European monetary union, and we should have a treaty by the end of 1992. Absolutely key moment. Meanwhile, Mitterrand, far from reading Cher Elmuth's letter, is taking off to Kiev to meet with Gorbachev to consider what the victorious allies of the Second World War might do about these troublesome Germans who want to, to unite, um, and planning his trip to East Germany. Interestingly, this is the detail, but I find a fascinating detail, in the preparations for the Strasbourg summit of the 8th and 9th December 1989, 
the political director of the Auswärtiges Amt, Dieter Kastrup, is trying to get his fellow Sherpas, political directors, to get into the communique, the pre-cooked communique of the Strasbourg summit, the formula from the famous Brief zur Deutschen Einheit, the letter to German unity, which ever since the, uh, the Ostverträge, the Eastern Treaties in Italy 1970, has said we're committed to achieving a state of peace in Europe in which the Germans can exercise their right to free self-determination and unite. Now, the Germany's, the Federal Republic's allies up to now have been gaily including this formula in lots of shared documents. The moment it actually becomes a possibility after the fall of the Berlin Wall, Castro suddenly finds that his European partners really don't want to put even that very general formula into the communique of the Strasbourg summit, a message that goes straight back to Bonn. The leaders arrive in Strasbourg. The atmosphere, according to Helmut Kohl's account, is icy. He singles out not just Mrs. Thatcher, but Giulio Andriotti, who talks about pan-Germanism, and even his friend Ruud Lubbers of the Netherlands, all of whom are highly critical uh, Cole talks in his memoirs about a fast tribunalartige Befragung, an almost tribunal-like um, uh, interrogation. He goes into lunch on the first day, and seeing that he has to do something, he repeats already the commitment he's made in the private letter to Mitterrand on the 5th of December. People name this or Kentness. But after lunch, uh, François Mitterrand has a private meeting with Margaret Thatcher. Thatcher notes in her memoirs, at Mitterrand's request, not at hers. We only have the British record of this meeting. The record is written by Charles Powell, her private secretary. Uh, I have myself had some experience of his somewhat colorful style of reporting on meetings, because he it was who wrote the famous memo, or infamous memo, on the Chequers meeting in March 1990. But unfortunately, we don't have the French record. But by Powell's account, Mitterrand said, I quote, in history, Germany had never found its true frontiers. There were people in constant movement and flux. At this, writes Powell, the Prime Minister produced her map showing various configurations of Germany from her handbag. <laughs> to underline President Mitterrand's point, from her handbag, she had it there. And then they continued very, very amicably. And then Mitterrand is reported as saying, I quote, listen to this, he was fearful that he and the Prime Minister would find themselves in the situation of their predecessors in the 1930s, who had failed to react in the face of constant pressing forward by the Germans. Now, first of all, we need to see the French version of this. Secondly, what Mitterrand said and what Mitterrand thought are, of course, two different things. And it's quite possible he was just stirring her up. But nonetheless, that's a remarkable document from the afternoon of the Strasbourg summit. By the end of the second day, Cole and Mitterrand have got essentially the deal that they were looking for. Um, support for German unification, but also a commitment to go for the IGC and therefore to European Monetary Union, in which eventually the Deutschmark will be given up. David Marsh, 
who's written an excellent history of the euro, describes this as the essential deal that led to the euro we have in our pockets, some of us anyway. Um, all in one month, from the 9th of November to the 9th of December, 1989. Three days later, on the 12th of December, Helmut Kohl meets uh, Jim Baker, US Secretary of State in West Berlin. We have, again, we have only the German record of this meeting, and at a certain moment in the conversation, um, uh, Kohl says, according to the German record, and this is, of course, an indirect speech, so this is Kohl, er frage sich, was er denn noch mehr tun könne, als beispielsweise die Schaffung einer Wirtschafts- und Währungsunion mitzutragen. Diesen Entschluss habe er gegen deutsche Interessen getroffen. Beispielsweise sei der Präsident der Bundesbank gegen die jetzige Entwicklung. Aber der Schritt sei politisch wichtig, denn Deutschland brauche Freunde. Es dürfe uns gegenüber kein Misstrauen in Europa geben. So, he says, I acted against German interests, quote unquote, but it was really important because we had to have friends to get German unification. Mary Elise Sarota, the American historian, who's written very well about this period and has looked for the American documents, but I think not yet found them, notes that in the archival version of this note, there's a little covering note from Horst Telchik, Cole's advisor, saying, I assume we shouldn't circulate this more widely. <laughs> and Helmut Kohl says, yeah, in the brackets. <laughs> well, indeed, the idea in leaky bomb that you would say, you know, quote Helmut Kohl saying, aha, gegen deutsche Interessen, uh, gehandelt, is an interesting one. Now, of course, again, we don't have to think, take this literally. We don't actually think that Helmut Kohl was acting against German interests because, as he himself says, there were two sides to the coin, and he had to do this to get support for German unification. And in fact, as many of you will know, he was a kind of dialectical Houdini. He put on the golden handcuffs of European integration in order to set Germany free, right? But he also was someone who was genuinely committed, and I come back to the idealism, to European unification. And in his mind, and here's the point, Euro European Monetary Union was also a means to the end of the European political union that he genuinely wanted, and he hoped it would lead to that. So, where do we stand in our assessment of the relationship historically between German unification and the essential deal that led to European Monetary Union. The joke at the time, some of you will remember, was half the Deutschmark for Mitterrand, the whole of Deutschland for Kohl. <laughs> this is a very crude version of what happened. Many historians resist it entirely. They say there was a whole process that had already been going in this direction. Andrew Moravchik, for example, in his very detailed study of decision-making, says that it was a domestic interest of weak and strong currency countries, quote-unquote, essentially unchanged by German Union. I myself think that is unsustainable in the light of the documents that we now have and the memoirs that we now have. Andreas Wirsching, in his excellent history of post-89 Europe, Der Preis der Freiheit, 
writes that there was a Jungtim, a linkage or nexus between German unification and European uh, Monetary Union. I think that's correct. The question is, what exactly is the nature of the linkage or nexus? Michel Rocard, the former French Prime Minister, um, put it very moderately. He said, I quote, Mitterrand had to accept German Union more quickly than he intended, and Helmut Kohl had to accept European Monetary Union more quickly than he intended. But I don't think that's quite right, because as Kohl himself often pointed out, if you hadn't got German unification quickly, you might not have got it at all. If you had waited till at or after the Russian coup in 1991, you certainly wouldn't have got it in the clear, clean form that we had it today. So actually, if you hadn't got it quickly, you might not have got it before. So I think the linkage is stronger. Certainly the linkage was that at this point, Germany was committed to giving up the Deutschmark in a framework of roughly 10 years if the Maastricht criteria were respected. And let me again remind you that the key people behind getting the Maastricht convergence criteria and therefore the commitment to 1999 were none other than Francois Mitterrand and Giulio Andriotti, two magnificent old foxes who met in an excellent, I think, Michelin two-star or three-star restaurant near Maastricht the night before the summit in order to work out how they were going to pin Helmut Kohl down. Beyond that, the nature of the linkage is, I think, this, and this is really important. Maybe sooner or later the Federal Republic would have gone for monetary union anyway. It's quite possible under Helmut Kohl it would have done. But what happened in that crucial month was that the order was reversed. And instead of the coronation route, political union, economic union, the monetary union came first, actually without much of an economic union, let alone the political union. And that, of course, is the origin of many of the problems that we have in the monetary union to this day. Moreover, because monetary union emerged in that particular context, it was even more than it had been beforehand a political rather than an economic project. And that's extremely important because in an alternative universe in which Delors had carried on in his proposed track in a divided Europe, much more attention arguably would have been paid to getting the economics right. But because it was an eminently political project, the politics dictated. Hans Tietmeyer in the early 1990s said we really should not let in Italy with a debt level of more than 100% if this monetary union is going to work. Carl Otto Pohl said in 2007, I believe it was a mistake to take Italy in. Looking at today's developments in relation to Italy, some might think they were right economically, but politically it was completely unthinkable completely unthinkable. This was a core political project of European integration that one of the original founding six members of the European Union, and with Giulio Andriotti as, if I may put it this way, the godfather of the Euro, um, <laughs> that Italy would not be included. And, and so the political logic then goes from one country to another until finally you get Greece coming in with, as we know, falsified statistics with something of the familiar logic 
um, that uh, Giscard d'Estaing had, had, had earlier articulated in the brilliant but also ridiculously facile sentence, on ne dit pas non à Platon. One doesn't say no to Plato. So that, I think, is the historian's history. Now, I turn to part two, reflecting on what has happened since. And of course, the first thing to note is that nearly 30 years on from those events I've described in some detail, we are still wrestling with exactly the same Franco-German differences about what an economic and monetary union should look like. Then Mitterrand Cole, now Macron and Merkel. What has been called the maison tante cordiale at the heart of the European Union, then as now. And we're still wrestling with the problems that arose from the deeply flawed design of the European Monetary Union as a result of the way in which it came about. Um, it's extremely interesting, extremely irritating if people say, I told you so. But I'm now going to say, I told you so. Because I was among the many, many, many people who warned against the dangers of, 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 of the monetary union. Um, in an article in Foreign Affairs in 1998, I spelled out all the familiar economic arguments about the probability of crisis noted that people are already anticipating a crisis of EMU and believing that that would catalyze further steps of unification. And then I wrote, but it is a truly dialectical leap of faith to suggest that a crisis that exacerbates differences between European countries is the best way to unite them. The fact is that at Maastricht, the leaders of the EU put the cart before the horse. They committed themselves to what was meant to be a decisive step to a uniting Europe, but now seems likely to divide even those who belong to the monetary union. Many people were saying this. I certainly don't claim to be alone in it. What we didn't, of course, anticipate was the specific mechanisms by which it would come about. For example, that financial markets would in, in what David Marsh rightly calls a grandiose example of mispricing, price German debt, ex uh, Greek debt exactly the same as German debt for years on end, the, uh, the bubbles in Southern Europe, how long it would take and therefore how grave the, the crisis would be. But to, to paraphrase Gabriel Garcia Marquez, this was the chronicle of a crisis foretold. And I'm afraid it has done what we feared. This is a continent divided by a common currency. I think this is a fairly widely had, held view. Hans Werner Zinn, in his book on the euro, calls it von der Friedensidee zum Zankapfel. It's indeed quite a Zankapfel. Joseph Stiglitz, in his book on the euro, subtitles it how a common currency threatens the future of Europe. It has, of course, resulted in extraordinary suffering in Greece and a loss of 25% of GDP, and the re-emergence of resentments in Greece towards Germany, which actually by the late 1980s and the early 1990s were very much, um, uh, much weakened. In the case of Italy, I would quote Martin Wolf in a recent article 
who says, I think, quite uh, with great nuance, that the Italian economic crisis is, I quote, not, ev not only, perhaps even not mainly, due to the Eurozone, but number one, the Eurozone has made it worse, which is clearly the case, and number two, the Eurozone has provided a political scapegoat for Italy's economic troubles, which I think is equally important. Brexit, you mentioned Brexit. Not, of course, the state of the Eurozone, not, of course, cause number one or two or even three of the Brexit vote. That would be immigration and intra-EU migration. But the British attitude to European integration has always been transactional. We have s looked at it as something which should be in our economic benefit. And the miserable state of the Eurozone was an argument of the Brexiteers and for Brexit. Shackled to a corpse was the phrase, you may remember. The Daily Mail on the 23rd of June 2016 during the Brexit referendum said, I quote, as for the 19 countries locked into the catastrophic one-size-fits-all single currency. Ask the jobless young people of Greece, Spain, and France if the euro has underpinned their prosperity." End of quote. That's the Daily Mail on the Eurozone. So I think it played a role here too. As interesting is the question of its consequences for Germany. And here, I think there are multiple ironies. Of course, most Germans didn't want to give up the Deutschmark, weren't asked if they wanted to give up the Deutschmark, and thought it would be bad for the country economically. In fact, Germany has done extremely well economically as a member of the Eurozone. Now, economists can argue till kingdom come about why exactly. You could adduce a lot of other reasons. Germany's manufacturing prowess, the Mittelstand, technical education, the growth of great export markets thanks to globalization, the reduction of unit labor costs, which incidentally starts at the time of unification, because of the supply of cheap labor, you can see it. The unit labor costs start going down at the time of unification, and then, of course, the shred of reforms. But also the euro, also the euro, a lower exchange rate externally than you would have had otherwise, um, a fixed exchange rate in, in, inside. And yet, although Germany has done very well economically inside the euro and partly because of the euro, the euro has been internally resented. Right? First, it was teurer euro. Things have got poorer. Then it was also, and I think this is still very important, nobody asked us if we want to give up the Deutschmark. And the Deutschmark was, as I don't need to tell this audience, the symbol of German identity in West Germany. Graham Greene, in one essay on West Germany, said rather amusingly, he thinks the West Germans wear the Deutschmark like a dueling scarf. Um, Alexandre Lamfalusi said to Helmut Kohl, how on earth are you going to get the Germans to give up the Deutschmark? Kohl said, I quote, it will happen. The Germans accept strong leadership. End of quotation. Well, <laughs> maybe they did. But I, I would hate to make the case for a referendum, but I think the feeling of not having been asked. Then, for the years when everything was going well, in the early 2000s, 
Nobody in high places really told the story to the German public that Germany was doing well inside the Euro. I think there was a real sin of omission in that period. When the Eurozone crisis breaks, particularly 2010 on, Angela Merkel, unfortunately, follows her familiar tactic at that time of waiting and watching and cautiously waiting to see where public opinion is to go and then following. And what happens is that a narrative, a certain narrative about the Eurozone becomes established in the German media, German public opinion, German politics, in which virtuous, disciplined, productive North Europeans are being asked to bail out feckless, fiscally imprudent, sunbathing, lazy southerners. That was, at best, a very simplistic version of what actually led to the Eurozone crisis. But the narrative got strongly established. And as we know in this age of populism, the power of a simple, somewhat nationalist narrative, once established, is enormous. It was not some right-wing newspaper, but Die Zeit, which, as Robert Manasseh pointed out, had a headline, I quote, Alle wollen unser Geld. Everyone wants our money. And that was the sort of the mood music in Germany. And let's not forget that the Alternative für Deutschland was originally an anti-Euro party, not an anti-immigrant party. The ironies continue, however. As I think I've made plain, what France and Italy, Mitterrand and Andriotti, wanted was at the moment of unification, German unification, to bind Germany in to European unification and keep France and Italy in the driving seat. The effect precisely of the, European, the, of the Eurozone has been the diametric opposite. It is precisely the Eurozone that has put Germany in the driving seat. Of course, a large, united, rich Germany would have been a very powerful country in the European Union, but specifically the conditions of the Eurozone has put Germany in that position. At the time of unification, everyone quoted Thomas Mann's famous saying, we want not a German Europe, but a European Germany. At a certain point, we woke up and discovered that what we actually have, particularly in the Eurozone, is a European Germany in a German Europe within the Eurozone. <laughs> But I emphasize once again, this is not a role that Germany sought or wanted. It is, as it were, a greatness that was thrust upon it through the fact of European monetary union. Ulrich Beck, in his very fine book, German Europe, reports waking up in February 2012 to a radio newscast or announcer saying, I quote, today the German Bundestag will decide the fate of Greece. One has to think about that. Today, the German Bundestag will decide the fate of Greece. I say again, a role that Germany had not thought, thought and into which it came actually very reluctantly. Beck goes on to say that Germany has gone from being the eager pupil of European integration to the schoolmaster of Europe, or perhaps it should be the schoolmistress of Europe. And indeed, the metaphor the key German metaphor of the German discourse about the Eurozone crisis has been alle müssen ihre Hausarbeiten machen. Everyone must do their homework. Now, for those of you who are German historians or historians of Germany, you will know 
that this metaphor is actually has cropped up before in German history. In Bismarck's famous speech to the Reichstag on the 19th of February, 1878, the Ehrlicher Makler, the honest broker speech, he says, I quote, aber ich bin nicht der Meinung, dass wir den napoleonischen Weg zu gehen hätten, um wenn nicht der Schiedsrichter auch uns der auch nur der Schulmeister in Europa sein zu wollen. Bravo, records the record. In other words, back then he is saying, we really don't want to be the schoolmaster of Europe. And where has the Federal Republic ended up being the schoolmaster of Europe? Uh, as I say again, a role it didn't seek, but nonetheless there it is. Actually, I think that given that it's been in this role, there is, of course, the question whether the lessons it has been teaching have been right in economic terms. But naturally, there's been some resentment. I myself would say it's quite remarkable how relatively little resentment <coughs> there has been of the schoolmaster of Europe, given where Germany has been positioned in the Eurozone crisis. I now come finally to the last part of what I want to say which brings us to the present and to thinking a bit about the future. Before I do that, though, let me just say a word about alternatives. Because, of course, in politics as in life, you have to start from where you are. Life is not lived in the subjunctive. But it's actually, I think, really important for historians to look at real alternatives that were available at the time. Now, there was absolutely nothing inevitable about the commitment being made to European Monetary Union in 1989-1990, as I hope to have demonstrated. Let's play the game of real alternatives. Suppose that we had stuck with a system of managed exchange rates, possibly closely, more closely managed exchange rates, which would evolve and respond to the economic necessities and instead of going for monetary union, had said, had been really far-sighted, had thought about the consequences of the end of the Cold War and German unification, and had said, what we really need is a complement to the eastward enlargement of the European Union, which is a consequence of 1989, is a much stronger common foreign and security policy to address the challenges that are inevitably going to come at us from a revanchist Russia, which has lost its empire, from Turkey, from other parts of our near abroad. I just put the question on the table. Wouldn't Europe actually be in a much better place if we had made that the other big project for the 1990s and the 2000s, so enlargement and a common foreign and security policy, instead of the premature rush to a very flawed monetary union? I think it was a mistake. I think one could argue it may even be the biggest strategic mistake in the history of European integration. But we are where we are. Klaus Offer argues in his book, Europe Entrapped, I quote, the euro is a mistake, the undoing of which would be an even greater mistake. Now, I'm not sure if I quite subscribe to the even greater. I think the euro was a huge mistake, but undoing it would be also a very big mistake. But but it would be a big mistake. So what now? Let me very briefly reprise 
my argument about dissonance and harmony. So in absolutely telegraphic summary, summary, one might say that after 1945, we had a massive dissonance between German and European unification, which was gradually resolved into a harmony by early to mid-1989. The fall of the Berlin Wall, however, the actual prospect of German unification, created a new dissonance, which was rather rapidly resolved into the apparent harmony of the commitment to monetary union, the harmony of Maastricht, not least as a response to German unification. That harmony, however, as I've just been arguing, itself led to a new dissonance between particularly Northern and Southern Europe, between the ins and the outs of the monetary union. And now the question is, can we take this dialectically a stage further and say that this dissonance will itself lead to a new harmony in which the very problems of the Eurozone will lead us to advance through crisis, as in functionalist theory, to a federalized Eurozone and a much stronger, more united Europe, as, for example, Emmanuel Macron is arguing for. Well, nobody knows. Nobody knows the future. But my own view is that this is rational, logical, and extremely unlikely to happen. And that for two fundamental reasons. First of all, for the one I already mentioned, because that gulf between French and German economic conceptions, more broadly between North and South European economic conceptions, is still very large between what has been called Ohio, put your own house in order, discipline, and risk sharing. Um, Marcus Brunemeyer, Harold James, and Jean-Pierre Landau in an excellent book called The Euro and the Battle of Ideas call this the Rhine Divide. Rules against discretion, liability against solidarity, solvency against liquidity, austerity against Keynesianism. And that divide, as we are seeing even now, is still very deep and quite difficult to bridge. The second reason, however, why I think it's unlikely to happen is that the functionalist approach going through economic means or bureaucratic integration to political ends always depended on an active consensus of elites and a passive consensus of populations. And that is no longer there in most European countries. And therefore, the irony of this whole story is that Cole agreed to European Monetary Union partly precisely as a means to the end of European political union, but what we are left with is the means as the end or the end point without the political will to create a European political union. Indeed, something even more striking than that. The strongest arguments now being made for elements of political union are we need it to make European monetary union work, to make the European zone, un, zone, Eurozone work. In other words, the relationship between ends and means has actually been reversed, right? The means has become the end and the end the means. So, in short, we put the cart before the horse in 1989 and the cart is still before the horse 
and the cart is likely to remain before the horse and not quite like Sisyphus, but almost like Sisyphus, we're condemned to be that horse constantly pushing the cart up the hill with our noses. I'm not going to make any prediction or any prescription. That's not, I don't have the expertise to make a prescription of what is needed. But I would like to end with three short reflections. Number one on this story, and then, of course, throw it open for discussion. Number one, I don't think it's very useful to think of history in terms of blame or responsibility. But I suppose if you were, you would say to the French and Italians who are complaining about the situation of the Eurozone, mais tu l'as voulu. You wanted it. It was Mitterrand and Andreotti whose project it was. To the Germans who are complaining about the state of the Eurozone, one might say, well, you got German unification in double quick time for it. And if it hadn't been done in double quick time, it might not have been done at all. And by the way, you've done pretty well economically inside the Eurozone. So to both sides, you know, finger pointing wouldn't get you very far. I don't think that's very useful. Secondly, I do think reflecting on the alternative I briefly mentioned is rarely useful. Because the imperative of having a stronger external policy, common foreign and security policy, is even stronger today, much stronger today, in the face of Putin's Russia and Erdogan's Turkey and the state of the Middle East, from which, of course, many of the refugees come. And so I do think a lesson from this story is that whatever else we do, we must not keep being obsessed by the internal problems, partly resulting from the condition of the Eurozone, but keep our eyes on the strategic importance of having a European foreign policy. My third and final reflection is about how we think about muddling through. So clearly, we're going to have to muddle through in relation to the Eurozone. Now, and my reflection is about how we think about muddling through. So I would say that United Germany, the Federal Republic, has what the French call les défauts de ses qualités the defects of its qualities. So one of its strongest qualities is the ability to achieve consensus and change through consensus. And the fault that goes with it is a lack of really robust intellectual debate prepared to confront really, really distinct and challenging alternatives. The word of the last few years was alternative laws. There is no alternative. And when you do too much alternative laws, then the alternative comes in the form of the Alternative für Deutschland. And I think there's a real lesson there. And it goes particular to the economics. Because the economics, which, as the joke, familiar joke goes, in Germany is a branch of moral philosophy. Um, but German economics on this subject are very close to a pensée unique. There is far too much consensus on this subject, far too much consensus. Whether it's right or wrong, by the way, I mean, John Stuart Mill's point was, even if the consensus is right, you need to challenge it. We could do with much more diversity. We could do with more French economists in Berlin, more German economists in Paris, and maybe more Anglo-American economists in both places. Brunemeyer and James talk about the need for an EIU, an Economic Ideas Union. Um, and I think that's a really good point. But it's not just about diversity in economics, it's also about 
diversity in economies. <coughs> One of the lessons of these 25 years is that national economies still have very different structures, are rooted in societies, polities, mentality, and cultures in very different ways. They are actually a part of cultures. And therefore, it is self-evident that what works in Germany will not necessarily work in Greece, and what works in France may not work in the Netherlands or in Poland. And that is, I think, a lesson that we really have all to learn. And that means that we have to accept untidiness, <laughs> messiness, diversity, <coughs> also in the Eurozone, against what Ralph Dahndorf identified in his great book on society and democracy in Germany as a certain German yearning for synthesis, which he discovers both by Hegel and by Adorno. This is not just, and this is my final remark, this is not just pure old-fashioned British pragmatism, what Der Spiegel once called the philosophie des Durchmuddels. <laughs> there is actually a good philosophical basis to it, and it is the philosoph philosophical basis on which Emmanuel Macron is actually working. And the philosopher is called Paul Ricoeur. It's Ricoeur against Hegel. Macron's en même temps, that famous phrase he uses again and again in the same time, is actually rooted in Paul Ricoeur's philosophy. This is brilliantly described in a book by François Doss, Le Philosophe et le Président. And Ricoeur argues that you really should not, in the most important matters, aspire to a single harmonious synthesis. He says in the most important questions, it's normally not black or white. It is shades of gray. And if I may use the phrase, perhaps in the Eurozone, we need to accept that there will be 19 shades of gray. In other words, that there is a perfectly consistent philosophical base for actually living with a really significant degree of untidiness, of internal pluralism and diversity in the way economies work and in the way politics uh, and societies work. In other words, perhaps the most truly European form of harmony is to learn to live with dissonance. Thank you very much. Thank you.